Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com and enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, and get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked Audio. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. I want to start today by making a very important announcement. Many of you out there may already be aware of this news, but I do want to make mention of it here on the program for those of you who might not have heard. Uh, so basically, here's the deal. And, and it's, it's not bad news. It's good news. So just relax. <laughs> uh, last week, I made the decision to open up the archives of this podcast and make every single episode completely free of charge. So, uh, all episodes of the other people podcast can now be streamed at no cost online, uh, at the show's website, otherppl.com. You can listen via iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, overcast, whatever podcatcher or device or whatever you want to use to listen to the show. You can do so free of charge. Now in the past, only the most recent 50 episodes were free as most of you know. And then if you wanted to access uh, episodes in the deep archives, you needed a premium subscription, which cost a small fee. This is no longer the case. The premium subscription model is now gone. It is defunct. It has been done away with. And all episodes of this program are 100% free of charge to all listeners all the time. So having said that, I do want to say a very sincere thank you to everyone out there, uh, the many hundreds of you who were in fact premium subscribers until just a few days ago. I hope you know how much uh, I appreciate your kind support. And, uh, and oh, before I forget, this is very important. I do want to clarify that 
the other people with Brad Listy app, this show, uh, for those of you who don't know, has its own official app. Please know that the app is still 100% good and functional. Uh, the app used to be how you could access premium episodes. Um, the app still works. In fact, it works better than ever. The app is free. It continues to be free. It's always been free. And now everything on it is free. Uh, I think it's the best and most uh, convenient way to listen to the show. You get the app at your favorite app store, uh, whether you're on an iPhone or an Android. And when you do that, every episode will be there waiting for you free of charge. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. You can even listen to the show at double speed if you want to save time or make my voice sound strange. Uh, the app is very nice. It has all the bells and whistles. And again, it is free. Everything is free. I'm just giving it away. It's all free. So, uh, finally, I guess I should add a few words about why I decided to do this, why I decided to open up the archives of the other people podcast, get rid of the subscription model and give it all away. And it's not all that complicated. I've been thinking about it for a long time and I, I ultimately decided that it is most important to me that people have access to these interviews as time goes on. I want to, I want to make it easy on you guys, especially those of you who are casual listeners who might only listen to one or two or three episodes of the program who might just, you know, stop by who might have one particular author who you want to hear from and you listen and then you're gone to make you jump a paywall in order to do that. Um, well, you know, it's, it's totally defensible <laughs> actually. And I, I want to emphasize that I don't feel bad about having used a subscription model. I don't think it was the wrong thing to do. I don't think it was the right thing to do. There's not like a right or wrong binary situation happening here. Uh, I feel like I'm doing a lot of hard work to make this show happen and there's nothing wrong with wanting to get compensated for it. Plus I was only charging, uh, what was it like 75 cents a month for the, the premium subscription. So it's not like I was asking uh, very much at all, but having said that in the end, uh, I decided uh, basically to just say, fuck it. Uh, I don't know how better to put it. I basically thought about it and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make it free. It's kind of just what I felt like doing. It's not much more complicated than that. Not only did I want to make it free for the very temporary casual listener, but also, and perhaps more importantly for the authors I've interviewed on this program, I want the authors and screenwriters and poets who have appeared on this show and who will appear on this show to know that their episodes will be available to readers and uh, other interested parties in perpetuity. Because one of the central concerns of this show, if not the central concern is trying to, uh, in whatever small way, help books and writers and literature find more cultural currency to bring people to books, to introduce listeners to new authors, to help authors find new readers. That's ultimately what I'm up to here. I'm, I'm trying to help foster that basic connection. And by removing the paywall, I feel like the podcast will be able to do this in greater numbers with greater frequency. It's just basic math. And, uh, I've already seen the results. The paywall has been down now for just a few days, less than a week. 
and already the show's numbers have spiked by nearly 60% by comparison, week to week. As it turns out, people love free shit. (laughs) It's the moral of the story. It's amazing what happens when you make everything free. So, uh, you know, the obvious downside for me is that I'm going to be losing revenue. The subscription model was providing me with income. And uh, that income is now gone, totally. And I knew that this would be the case. It's not like it's some big surprise. I made the decision. I'm okay with it. And uh, I also know that by making this show free, I am, to some people anyway, implying that the work I do here has no value. That's what, you know, that's what the... In, in market speak, I think that's probably the way that it would be perceived. That the show, because it is free, is therefore valueless. And it is expressing itself as such in the marketplace. Now, I don't happen to believe that. But I imagine that some people will think of it that way because it is available for free. The truth is, uh, I think this is probably one of the most valuable things I do both personally and professionally, uh, hopefully for the authors I talk to and, uh, for you, the listeners who listen regularly and, and really get something from it. And th- the truth is, I know that, that it is valuable to a lot of listeners because I hear from, uh, you guys all the time. I get nice emails almost every day from people who listen to the show and really enjoy it. And on Twitter, I occasionally hear from people who want me to die of the Ebola virus, which is always delightful. So I'm a realist, you know, I know that most people who listen, uh, especially casual listeners are not likely to feel inclined to support the show financially. And frankly, I don't think they should have to. That's what this is about. If you're listening once or twice a year, it should be free. I have no problem with that. And just generally speaking, I want the thing to be available. I don't want it to be hard. I want it to be easy. There's enough in life that's hard. Let's make the other people podcast easy for people. Just a nice, easy thing in your life that you can go to when you're trying to pretend to work. All that I ask is this. If you're a regular listener, if you're somebody who really does enjoy the show and get something of value from it, if, uh, if you listen weekly or most of the time, or let's say you've listened to more than 15 episodes in a year, I would ask in that case that you consider supporting the show, paying for it a little bit or a lot, whatever you can afford. But what I'm saying is I hope you would consider it in the way that you consider anything that you value, whether it's a cup of coffee or a book or a sandwich or whatever. And, uh, there are three ways that you can support the show. If you want to donate on a recurring basis, uh, a few bucks a month, you can do that easily, safely, securely over at Patreon. You just go to patreon.com slash other PPL pod. And, uh, you know, there's like various tiers of support, everything from three bucks a month to uh, up to whatever you want. You can also make a one-time donation via PayPal. There's now a link uh, in the sidebar on the otherpeople.com website. 
if you uh, want to, you know, just throw a couple of bucks in the hat as a show support in that way, that's fine. And finally, you can sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. That is $9.99 a month. And when you do that, you get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. And then on top of that, I interview the book club authors on this program. So you get an experience. You can read the book. You can listen to the interview in conjunction. And uh, you get something tangible for your money in addition to the podcast. I should also add that $9.99 is less than the cost of a book. So you're getting a great deal. So that's it. That's it. That's what's happening. The podcast is now free. You've heard my spiel. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it at length again at the top of the show. I'll probably do a plug at the end of every episode, much as I have been. But otherwise, I'm just going to say it now and then leave it to you guys to decide how and when and whether uh, to support the show. It's an act of faith. My life is in your hands. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Kristen Dombeck. She is the advice columnist for N Plus One Magazine, and she has a book out from FSG Originals called The Selfishness of Others, an essay on the fear of narcissism. It was a great pleasure to talk with Kristen. Uh, she was in New York. I was here in L.A. We spoke uh, via Skype, I believe. I had read her book, really enjoyed it, and wanted to pick her brain, and she was just a delight. So uh, here she is, folks. This is Kristen Dombeck, and her book, One More Time, is called The Selfishness of Others, an essay on the fear of narcissism. You know, on the surface, I was sort of fascinated with the way that the word depicts this hall of mirrors moment always, beyond which people who you disagree with start to look fake and evil. You know, and then you end up just mirroring each other. Ugh, everybody's everybody's calling each other narcissists. Yeah. It's just like a blank. It basically has become in our culture kind of a blanket term yeah. for anybody who we have ill feelings about, uh, especially in the context of intimate relationships or politics, it would seem. Yeah, which is not to say that, like, you know, I mean, we need language and we for when people are assholes and when people are like lacking in empathy and doing evil shit like it's our word for it right now um and that's i think what's interesting to me you know like why is there like 
there are people who fit that description and you should be careful of them and you should you should you know get away from them if you're in a relationship with them but when I started writing about it, I noticed that like, you know, half the people I knew like had an ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend who was a narcissist. I mean, not when they, you know, it's only exes that are narcissists or people who you're breaking up with. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. not like, you, <laughs> um, it's not your boyfriend the first few months that you're with them. Right. Like, and it's, it's, um, it just seemed to me that the, yeah, that the word is being to describe what it feels was being used to describe what it feels like when someone is turning away or on their way out of your life or is like who you can't understand in some fundamental way, you know, because they're not paying, they're not acting in a way that recognizes you, basically. And and what about writing? I mean, you say that this uh, this project for you is also an outgrowth of concerns you had as a writer, and in your book you talk about how. Uh, you know, the, the words I and me have appeared more in, what is it, in American literature? or in, Yeah, American fiction and nonfiction since like 1960. So someone or, someone took the time to actually calculate this? or is that, Yeah, I mean, they used the Google Ngram, like the, you know, Google databases of um, where you can, I don't know if you've played with them, but they're really fun, where you can, you can figure out like, you know, how often words are used in a massive... Um, Google's like collected uh, hundreds and thousands of books or whatever, and then and you can find out how often a certain word has been used over decades um, in these books. And so they figured out that that um, writers, American writers, are using I and me um, way more and in, in using we less, and used this as an argument um use this to argue that uh we are you know in american culture as a whole becoming more um self-absorbed and narcissistic and as a writer and as a teaching teacher of writing writing um i was a bit suspicious of that when i think i maybe you know read that sort of scroll down my twitter feed or something um and i started you know, the the quick version, the Huffington Post version or whatever of this new study. And I started looking into it because I wondered how, um, I, I wondered how they argued for that view of writing and how writing works, right? That like, if I use the word I, I'm necessarily using it in a self-absorbed way. I disagree. <laughs> I disagree with that. I mean, I get the, right? I, I get the idea. Like I know that like uh, metrically, uh, it it can sound persuasive, like oh, we're saying I and me more, and you know it's all about yeah. me. But I, come on, and and I and I also disagree with this notion that if you're speaking in the first person, you're necessarily self-absorbed. I think sometimes first-person writing can be um, like a really generous, like maybe the most generous, because you're kind of putting yourself out there and excavating, and um, I don't know, it's it's risky. Yeah, yeah it's it's. Um it's risky and it can be i mean i obviously i have the same experience that i'm i'm very grateful for people who write frankly about um their own lives and also who write frankly about their own thinking and are uh sort of honest enough to admit that it's just their thinking by writing from the eye rather than you know pretending it's some kind of objectivity right so um and in fact when i work with students uh, I teach freshmen a lot, and 
it's one of the things that they come in, it's like sort of been beaten out of them using the eye. You know, they've been told you can't ever do it. Not when you're writing Um, academically, certainly, right? You should never say I because it takes away your authority um, and nobody cares what you think, right? (laughs) Um, And so it's like I push them and we all do in the program I work in, we push them to try out using the I so that they can do all kinds of sort of more ethical and more interesting things in their arguments, right? Because they can say, I think this, but I don't know about this. You can be uncertain if you use the I. You can be provisional. You can... um, you can, uh, yeah, you can be more generous to the reader. And it's not to say that people always are, you know, of course. But like, yeah, it's like this paradox. To me, it's, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by the way that, like the memoir trend is also cited as, a, as an example of increasing narcissism. But that just like numerically doesn't make sense, right? Because if like <laughs> one person's writing the memoir and then, you know, hopefully many people are reading it. And all those people want to read about someone else. So how is this an, <laughs> is an example of increasing? That seems like it would be, the memoir trend seems like it would be an example of people's increasing interest in other people, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that argument I'm not a mathematician, but I think. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about you? I mean, did you have concerns when you, I mean, I think you allude to this a little bit. Do you have some concerns for yourself? Like, am I, you know, because I'm writing in the first person, am I spending too much time thinking about me? Like, um, you know, I can, I can say on the one hand that I believe writing in the first person can be uh, an act of generosity and can be very selfless. But I've also had the thought, you know, as a writer myself that like, wow, I'm really spending a lot of time thinking about my own shit. Uh, yeah. Did you have that fear too? Yeah, totally. And I get, I mean, I get sick of thinking about my own shit and I like, <clears throat> but I'm also embarrassed by it. <laughs> I'm embarrassed by the fact that I do it. I have like a, um, I have an old bias that I don't know when it got instilled in me, maybe as an English major in an undergrad, or maybe it was through sort of my evangelical Christianity and Midwestern. Oh, wait, you're from Indiana, too, I read, I think. Yeah, right? yeah. Is that where you're from? Yeah, yeah. No, no kidding. Where are you from? <laughs> um, Warsaw, like northern Indiana. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I went to Carmel High School. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Go Greyhounds. High school. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, you know that, like, that, that sort of Midwestern thing of you don't talk about yourself. Um, or was it? I don't know if it was just my family and my evangelicalism, but, like, I was, you know, sort of brought up to think that you don't talk about yourself <laughs> and that also that, um, Fiction is a superior art form to, say, nonfiction or to memoir, you know, because it's a greater art to imagine. Right. And I hear that a lot, right? That it's more... You got, of, wait, you got that as a kid? I think, yeah, I think so. And yeah. what, like, and what's, okay, so you're born in wars, or uh, in Indiana, and, like, born and raised, whole childhood? Um, I was born in Philadelphia, and then um, my parents were both, their families were both from... Indiana, so they moved us back there to the family farm when I was like nine. <clears throat> so you grew up on a farm? Yeah, and homeschooled. Oh man, the whole deal. The whole deal. And so, okay, and then, but now you're an atheist, and <laughs> I, I would presume your political leanings are leftward. So that's yeah. you, you sort of swung away from that. Like, how did that transformation happen? Um, 
It happened. I mean, I I did go. I went. I went to. Um, I went away to college. I went to a Christian college, um, where, but where I started to see kind of um, glimpses of a larger world, you know. And I'd always had doubts um, and questions about my faith. I was really like, I very much like my belief in God and my like belief in in Jesus and my like effort to have Jesus live through me was like very much the center of my life. But yet I was always, um, I never could make sense of, um, you know, why God set it up so that there was evil and I, and suffering, you know, I could never wrap my mind around that or why it was that someone who might never have heard of Jesus would go to hell, you know, like I just could never, even from the time I was a kid, wrap my mind around those questions. And so I would go through all these periods of deep doubt and struggle or whatever. And I think they just kind of like built up to a point where, in my early 20s, I I was in, you know, like cog- cognitive dissonance, I guess is what they would call it. And like, like I just could, uh, half the time I like didn't think any of it true, was true and half the time I did. And so my, my brain just hurt and my heart hurt and I didn't know. <laughs> and I just like took a leap and stopped believing. Um, I mean, there were a few other things going on that I think contributed to it. Uh, and then I started taking Greyhounds to New York City pretty soon after that. And that did it? Yeah. Like, you, I showed up in you, New York, and I was do, like, okay. <laughs> did, you do, did you do drugs? Uh, y- yes. I mean, did that have an impact? I'm always curious about this, because I feel like it, mm-hmm. had, an, I feel like it had an impact on me. Uh, oh, really? It's just in terms of, like, yeah, worldview, spirituality, you know, that sense. Like, I feel like sometimes that can be a breaker. I'm always curious to know if it had an impact. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was hanging around um, in college with um, these people who were uh, sort of Christians and philosophy, you know, like philosophy majors and dropping a lot of acid as a way of kind of coping. (laughs) Well, but actually like a way of trying to get to some kind of like Christian transcendence, like they were kind of like hippie Christian, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, And uh, I didn't do a lot of drugs in college. I did some, but like. For me, yeah, for I, that wasn't really the thing so much as like um, starting to see ways in which. Um, so, like, I've been thinking about this lately because of this this scary moment. Um, I, what I hope is a kind of a moment <laughs> in history uh, that, like, so there was this. And you, you mean you mean like the the fact that we yeah, have a, yeah, a I've been crazy crazy, like, crazy person in the White House <laughs> yeah yeah so there was this guy David Noble who brought a what he called a documentary to my school called the Gay Agenda <laughs> and uh, it was like funded by Pat Robertson are you there yeah I'm here okay my screen went blank I just wanted to make sure um, and it was like this this. Like shots of the gay pride. I don't know. Do you know about this? Film? No, no, I've never <laughs> seen it. <laughs> this was. It was like. I think it was made in the. Is it on Netflix? This must have been in. You know, this was like early '90s or something that it was made. You can get to parts of it. I think on. It's not on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it in my queue. Also, I think it might be on YouTube. But it's so you know, it's this like anti. Um, 
uh, anti-gay, anti-queer sort of propaganda thing with all these like scary lists of what gay people do and footage from gay pride parades in San Francisco and New York and with scary music underneath it and stuff. And um, like, I don't know, a couple thousand people turned out and gathered in this auditorium to see this thing and to fight about it and to shout at each other. There was a really big kind of contingent of people who were, um, you know, really behind it, behind the scary message about the gay agenda. And I was like, at that time, I was like, officially believed that, um, you know, homosexuality (laughs) was wrong, even though I I like liked girl, I kind of knew I liked girls, partly, you know, but I still believed it was wrong. And like, and yet in that room, wait, are you gay? I mean, I'm half, I'm, bi- I'm bisexual. Oh, okay, but, okay. Um, but, like, my, in that room, like, I felt this hate, you know, this hatred, and I just knew that it was not, like, that was not related to the Jesus that I knew, and that that, that but that this was sort of endemic to the institution I was involved in, you know? And so, like, that happened a few, I think a maybe the spring before I lost my faith, you know, and there are other things like that that just started to feel like so contradictory that I didn't really know there was an outside world, but I was just like, there has to be, (laughs) you know, you know, you know what the problem, you know what the problem with God is? What's that? He's a narcissist. (laughs) I know. Well, this is so like, (laughs) this is, I think that you're right. The Christian God anyway, is right. He's got issues. Yeah. It's all about but, him. Yeah. And, you know, all the stuff about, well, did you grow up in the church or not? I grew up a uh, Catholic, but always, always like kind of fighting it ever since I was a kid. Um, like I got confirmed and stuff, but by the time I was like 14 or 15, I was, I was done and my parents sort of gave up. I was kind of a kid who wasn't going to go. Hmm. Um, so it never really took, but I come from a very Catholic family. And, uh, like, I don't know if I'm an atheist. I don't know what I believe, you know, like, I just like, yeah. I'm just like a shrug. I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I'm <laughs> kind of Buddhist, but like, not really. I've never, yeah. I've never been to a Buddhist temple once in my life, or I guess actually once in my life I have, but like, I don't go to like any kind of church, you know, yeah. um, I'm, I'm sort of trying to figure it out, but, um, yeah. I could never, I could never fully grasp what, what was going on. It never made sense, you know? Yeah. I'm. I'm so interested in that, you know, like why for some people it doesn't take and like for me it took so hard and like what, (laughs) you know, like that's, I mean, that's a little bit what I'm writing about in the book I'm working on now, I guess, but. What is the book that you're working on now? I look at that, I'm like, well, that's so, you're so smart to know, to resist this institution at such a young age, you know. uh, But, you know, I don't know. It depends on environment and, and, uh who you're you know who you're friends with and where you are and i feel like you know my parents and my extended family come from the south and i I was not Mm -hmm. raised i was not raised in the south and i go down there to visit i've been down there a million times you know all throughout my life to visit uh family and like down there everyone is uh pretty much involved in church and it's this cultural thing and it's very social and very very much the norm uh, yeah. to, to a degree that it wasn't in the towns that I grew up in, even though the towns I grew up in were fairly, you know, conservative, suburban, church-going places or whatever. But yeah. uh, I think about that. It's like, man, if you're born in the Deep South, 
uh, your worldview is going to be uh, most likely a lot different. I guess that, you know, there are plenty of people yeah. from the South who um, are at odds with it, but it, it just seems like it's a different, uh, it's a different planet. Yeah. And, and you, and you're maybe going to have um, a sense that you're on a different planet from people. I mean, like the people the culture you glimpse, say, on TV that's produced or in films that's produced on the coasts, you know, like that you're and I think that so like in the um, in the in the like, you know, Christopher Lash is like the big first big best selling book on narcissism, the culture of narcissism in 1980 or like the recent books um like the Narcissism Epidemic by Gene Twenge and Keith Campbell, like they have this argument that part of what's happening, part of why we're get, becoming more narcissistic is because we're falling away from religion, right? And we're falling away from religion and from those, you know, those old time values of home and community and duty under the, um, I think there's a nostalgia, even though they're not, Christian arguments, there's a nostalgia for a time before everyone got so shallow and selfish. And that time coincides, you know, and always when people are nostalgic, I'm like, when to for what? Like for housewife times, for slavery times? Like, what are we wanting to go back to? You know, but like, I think it's like, as if religion ensures that we are outward looking, you know, and that we're um, duty oriented, and we're community oriented. And I was suspicious of that. I mean, I just was felt suspicious of that from the start because of my experience growing up trying to empty myself out for a God who I was taught I was created only in his image, that I should not have a self, but I should, you know, let him live through me, that he was an angry and jealous God who only wanted me to love him and no other God, <laughs> not the world, right? Okay, so this sounds like the bad boyfriend script that you read about on the internet, you know, if you're hooked up with a narcissist. Right. And I don't think, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I love all kinds of things about Christianity and I have a deep respect for religion. You know, there are many, like, Christians who are, I wish I could... Anyway, I, I have an assaulter for that myself, but I well, don't... Well, no, it's, it's an interesting point because, you know, yeah. you say you're an atheist now, and, I, like, I, while I'm not a believer, I do sometimes bristle at atheism yeah. because I feel like it can mirror the kind of certainty that I feel from religious people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like a... Fi it's like this fixed point of view, and there can be a real fervor in it that feels very much religious to me. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I definitely feel that, that as well. Um, and I should say yeah. too, just to be totally honest, like I go back and forth. I can, yeah. I can, I can exhibit that frustration. Like I can sound a lot like the angry atheist when I'm confronted with what I feel is like really brazen uh, religious uh, idiocy or uh, ignorance or whatever. Um, but then other times, like I've, uh, I've been reading about Albert Einstein. Like this, mm -hmm. this, this is where I am. This is where I am in my dissolution lately. Like speaking, <laughs> speaking to this political moment, I'm just like I just want. And, and this is an impulse in me that is has been persistent from the beginning. It's like I'm always looking for the the information. Like just, like just tell me what to do. Just give me the yeah. rules. Like wh where where are the answers? Where's the instructions? And uh -huh. so lately, I've been so 
um, feeling so desolate or whatever that I'm like, I'm just going to read about like the smartest man that ever lived. Like, what did he think? And Mm. he had some religious impulse, even though he had this like brilliant scientific mind. And he was, uh, he was, you know, I think one of the genius, uh, or maybe like the, the core of Einstein's genius was his ability to take like really abstract stuff and, uh, boil it down into like real world examples and to imagine it in the context of the actual world, um, mm-hmm. as a way of, of, you know, creating his, his, um, theories and also for finding evidence procedures for them. Like, you know, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a hard thing to paraphrase cause I understand so little of what he did, <laughs> but you know, that's the way it's described in this book. And he's talking about religion and his basic feeling about it, which I think is similar to mine in that it's like you go into a library as a child when you're like preliterate and you're standing there in this library and you're looking around at all of these books and you're sort of sensing that there's meaning within them and you see all these markings on the pages when you crack open one of the books and you know there's stuff in there, but you don't know quite what it means, but you know that there's a real me- like deep meaning in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, like I think that's the way he walked through the natural world. And uh-huh. I mean, that's a really broad way of putting it, but that makes as much sense to me as anything, you know, like there, there's gotta be something going on. I just don't think we are anywhere close to knowing. Uh huh. Yeah. Like there couldn't be, the world couldn't be as meaningful as it is if there weren't some pattern outside of, outside of human consciousness. Is that what you mean? Something, just something like, like, I just, I just think we only understand a fraction of what the fuck is going on. Yeah. And and that includes like uh, whatever conception we might have of a supernatural uh, creator or supernatural binding energy or whatever. Like, yeah. or we live in a matrix and like this is a video game and like whoever's playing it is fucking with me right now. You know, right. Um, yeah. You know, like I, like all of these imaginations we have are probably off the mark. And like I think we have a a ways to go before we we really wrap our heads around it. I mean, not not that there haven't been genuine spiritual insights among people. Uh, but I don't know. It seems like a, a humble way of looking at it. Yeah, I guess, um, I agree with you. I think I use the word atheist to remind, just to remind myself, um, because I have to work kind of hard against, I don't know. I think just because where I came because of where I came from, I use that word, you know. Yeah, but me too. Me if too. I would just if were to describe what I feel and what I think, it would probably be just like what you just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I do the same thing. I feel like you know, once you have uh, been told as a child that there is kind of like a, a god in the sky watching you, like surveilling, yeah. surveilling your every move. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a hard thing to shake, you know. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard to, it's hard to get rid of like that feeling that someone's like right behind you or looking over you or whatever it is. And, um, I don't know. I was raised Catholic. There's a lot of guilt in Catholicism. I I don't, I would imagine there's a lot of guilt and shame in evangelical Christianity too. Yeah, there sure is. In fact, I think that's where, that's where we started this because we were talking about the shame of writing about yourself or talking about yourself, right? Like the, the censure against that, um, which yeah like i i think i think i definitely have that and i'm trying and like writing that book was a way of trying to wrestle with it you know yeah well and and like you talked earlier a little bit uh like you mentioned briefly these websites uh which you know in reading your book were news to me but Mm. it's fascinating that there's this proliferation of websites out there 
for people who feel they've been in relationships with narcissists and how to extract yourself from a bad toxic relationship with a narcissist and there's all this lingo like there's an entire vocabulary to it and there are these huge communities of people that are out there doing this yeah yeah and it's and even beyond the um the the sort of forum boards and all that kind of stuff like i think you also see you see but maybe you don't see it i don't know i mean it's gendered in these ways that are are, are you know i'm not like a I don't, it's so hard to quantify the internet and say how pop in some ways, you know, like how widespread something is. Um, but like for me, especially because of these algorithms that only show me when I start researching what, <laughs> what will be, you know, connected to what I'm already researching. So it's like, but for me, what shows up on online and, and what shows up even in social media is like this increasing language of like, toxicity get the toxic people out of your life you know like this um uh we're the empathetic ones and can you believe how what assholes everyone else is yeah right yeah and a, lot, a lot of a lot of tribalism yeah uh, and i've been having you know like i think i'm always sort of like reflexively um contrarian or i like if everything starts going one way or i feel like there's a lot of momentum in a certain direction i get suspicious Sure. Uh, and I feel that there is a, a fever on the left that is growing in reaction to this moment, which is like, I don't know, in a lot of ways it's proportionate and uh, I'm totally with it. But there's also a part of me that's like, you know, this can this can spin into something that very much mirrors that which it professes to oppose. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. there, there can be yeah. an intolerance uh, on like intolerance and uh you know, and all of that comes with it can happen on the left just as much as they can happen on the right. It's not like one half of the equation is exempt from any kind of toxicity, you know? Yeah, 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 I agree. And it's that dynamic that scares me more than anything, you know, the dynamic between us. Well, and let's and talk about that, because like with regard to narcissism and with regard to, <laughs> um, you know, you know, we talk about how you, there's an easy kind of mental exercise that people can do getting nostalgic about, uh, you know, the halcyon days that probably never existed yeah. and like wanting to go back to the fifties, if you're a conservative or wanting to go back to, I don't know, the sixties, if you're a liberal or whatever it is. Um, yeah. and, uh, I, I don't agree that that's, that there was ever like a good old days, but there was a time in this country and in this world where fame, as we understand it, was not even a thing. Like it's a relatively recent invention in, uh, mm -hmm. in the species. And then you couple that with the fact that we now live in this age of social media where our brains, which from an evolutionary standpoint were wired, you know, back, uh, when we were just, uh, you know, living in the Serengeti as a species, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. now we're like interacting on Snapchat and Twitter and, um, everybody sort of, got their own little megaphone to the entire group and can kind of create a certain version of fame for themselves. Like that would seem to be, that would seem to be related to the proliferation of narcissism or like the use of the word and the belief that it is growing. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I definitely think so. And I think that, um, Hmm. 
I mean, uh, uh, yeah, to be honest, like the, the, you put it very well, like the, the preponderance of like this, this, like everyone can be a little bit famous and like that as a motive. Like, uh, I do think that that is, it's something that's markedly different historically. And it's like, um, it is like structurally similar to the thing that we call narcissism, Enough so that, you know, maybe we might as well just call it narcissism. I guess, like, that the, to me, the, what I worry about is the way in which it's, like, always someone else who's narcissistic in the way that they do it, you know? Like, or it's always the younger generation, the ones who are sort of more net, native and who are, like, do, like, you know, who's, what, like, the epidemic is always coming from somewhere else, I guess. Right. Those, rather, those damn millennials. <laughs> right, the damn millennials. And like and then I'm also worried I don't know, I'm a little bit worried about the way that we I think what's also contagious is like this like diagnosis, right? Let's lightning fast diagnosis <laughs> of others. Um using like the kind of power of like psychology, like you get to be a little psychologist all of a sudden and be like, Oh, um, that millennial is such a narcissist because she's posting so many selfies, uh, which maybe that's a different kind of use of the word narcissist, but you're kind of like invoking the power of psychology to differentiate you from her, you know, when actually we're all being called on to perform in these ways. Um, and I think we're anxious about it. Right. I, I, I think we feel guilty about it. I'm definitely I'm anxious. anxious. I'm ready. Yeah. To, I'm ready. To, I'm, I'm slowly quitting them all. I want to quit them all. Yeah. Like if I were my best self, I would just quit them all. And I think that uh, I think that the reason or, or like, you know, speaking to your book and to the topic at hand, uh, you know, I, you know, they're tools. They're not inherently evil or anything like that. Yeah. But uh, it does fundamentally change the way that we conceive of and project our sense of self. Yeah. It's about self. Like we used to identify who we are through interactions with other people in the real. Um, and I get, well, okay. So just to play devil's advocate with myself, because I was reading about this recently <laughs> and it was like, there was a Ted talk. Like I was reading about a Ted talk. I never actually saw the oh Ted. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. That's how, that's how Speaking far of like, not, yeah, <laughs> that's how far down the wormhole I was. But <laughs> It was basically this uh, argument that, like, you know, uh, as recently as a couple hundred years ago, most people didn't even know how to read or whatever it was. A few hundred yeah. years ago, most people didn't weren't even literate. Uh, and then you have the creation of all of these uh, media forms. I guess you would call them old media almost, like mm-hmm. uh, books, radio, television, and, and television in particular – which cut against the way that we used to newspapers, uh, I guess would be included. But these kinds of media, uh, you know, mass media cut against the way that we had been used to um, communicating with one another, where it was two-way. It became a one-way thing. And Mm -hmm. so I think there may be an argument for social media's, um, there may be a positive argument to be made for social media that, you know, for all of its ills, it is at least a, a two-way street. You you can yeah. communicate with another human being. We are back into communication with one another. Like it used to happen around a campfire at night. 
um, <laughs> with like peyote and like a pipe or something. But like now it's now it's uh, you know everybody. Those the good old days. Those were the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to go back to. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I'll I'm see not. You. I'm not even kidding. Uh, so no. it's, it, it seems meaningful. It seems like there would be something to it, but. Uh, so I guess like, you know, maybe there's something to the idea that now we're at least in communication with each other. Um, but what differentiates social media from the campfire or from the kitchen table or from, uh, even the telephone is that, you know, you can broadcast to the entire group or to a huge group of people and everybody can do that. And that's, what's new. That is what's new. And it's, I don't think it's new. I mean, I could just let you go on having this disagreement with yourself. (laughs) (laughs) It's entertaining. See which one of you wins. But but, yeah, I don't think it's new that um, we are performing to be noticed, right? Right. And performing to gain attention. Or, and I don't think it's new that, so I think even around this, this, This golden age campfire, you know, (laughs) the peyote, like, probably everyone was like, wondering, you know, wanted sort of acceptance from each other and tried to perform or tell the best story, you know, to get around the campfire to, um, to know them and to accept them, right? Like, I, I would imagine that self, I'm, I imagine that selves have always been kind of performances a little bit more than we might ever want to admit yeah yeah and, well, then, and also like uh, they also seem slipperier like that this is yeah. a big obsession of mine lately is like trying to figure out what a self is and how it's created and how we conceive of it like that gets to the core of it for me uh at a yeah. lot of levels you know like uh, yeah. that particular thought project I'm, i don't think i've got it by the tail <laughs> to say I, the least <laughs> but you know as you said about me and Trump, when you figure, I want you to figure that out and explain it to me, but <laughs> tell me what to do yeah. about selves. Yeah. But like, what? I mean, I don't know, like that I believe this, but I'm, I, I too, I think like you, I like when some, when people are overwhelmingly saying something, I, I just tend to resist it. Um, and so when people are overwhelmingly saying like the self is fundamentally changed because of the internet and we're becoming hollow narcissistic selves like never before who are only motivated by vanity right like and who therefore are just performing for the sake of getting it attention rather than genuinely being social with each other you know in this new way or whatever um i just wonder (laughs) like and i start making the kind of ridiculous counter argument that what if it's just that the internet draws attention in a really uncomfortable way to the to how selves have always been, <laughs> you know, um, right. to the way that what if it makes us kind of see like how stuff that we used to be able to believe is just kind of like natural and like natural sociality, like um, and community and so on. Like what if it and good people and I don't know, all the good old days stuff. Like, what if it just makes us see that we've been making ourselves all along, you know, and performing all along and that 
there's you never can tell what's really up with someone behind the mask without lots of time and lots of the work long work of love and understanding and empathy even that doesn't even feel good but that you know you know and like what if also it's just like we're people are empathetic online they do care about each other online but it is so new and so fast and so great in scale that we just we don't know how to do it yet yeah we don't we don't know who to trust we're freaking out (laughs) (laughs) well nice talking with you Kristen. Uh, you know, I get it. I feel it. I feel like I'm having, I have very mixed feelings about it. Uh, I kind of want to press pause, I guess would be the way to, to say it and to take a breath and try to figure out if what, you know, if it's, if it's any good, it might be related to the fact that I have kids and I'm like, is this good for them? Uh, Like, do I want them to be on looking at a screen all the time? And I need to make sure that I'm making good decisions on their behalf while they're this young and I get to make those decisions, you know, so that I don't screw it up. You know, I don't want... I don't want to melt my child's brain, you know, like with, um, I think that that's so hard. And I, yeah, I like, have like, when do you give, when do you give, when, right when do you give your kid a phone? You know, like when do you let them start, uh, using the internet? What about social media? Cause kids, I mean, you look at the cruelty, just like the wanton cruelty of adults on social media. And then you think about it in the yeah. context of like adolescence and, uh, yeah. you might be doing your kid a huge favor by keeping them off of that as much as possible. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, my parents didn't let us watch television. And, or, and you know, I grew up with, a lot of people I grew up with never went to movies. It was like Footloose? It was like Footloose. Could you dance? And I was allowed to dance, yeah. And what about, parents- oh, go ahead. I don't know. I'm just trying to think like, yeah, I'm mad at my my parents for some things, but not for that. I was going to say, I was going to say, what about, what about books? I mean, like, yeah, we read like crazy. We just read all the time. Could you read whatever you wanted? Yeah. Okay. So that's the key. Cause like for somebody, I'm always fascinated by people who were homeschooled and turned out to be, um, as bright and well-educated. I mean, I know that you went on to college and whatnot, but uh, like nothing against your parents who may be very, very bright, but that's a huge undertaking for a parent to oversee the education of a child. Like I, I imagine that as a father myself and I'm like, I feel like I would mm-hmm. fuck, I feel like I would fuck that up <laughs> like pretty, pretty badly. I, 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 you know, teaching math and science and all, you know, taking, taking on all of it seems like a huge task. Yeah, I'm not sure I really got a lot of the whole math part of life. But it's, all right. it's all right. You don't need it. <laughs> I mean, but as it turns out, you don't, I don't need it, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it depends what you do, but I think for your purposes, you're all set. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so- I mean, I think, yeah, I think that it's like, like we, grownups, we, no one I know knows how, much time to look at the internet and how to not look at it (laughs) and so i just to figure out how to work with your children about that it's it's just like that's daunting and admirable and i suppose it's like just a process of trial and error right yeah i mean it's gonna be i mean if we we talk about the millennials as being like super net native or whatever it is digital natives uh, it would stand to reason that subsequent generations are going to be even more so. And then you're going to get into, 
like I think you, I think VR or uh, virtual reality mm-hmm. and augmented reality are coming down the pike, yeah. and, and it looks like those are going to be um, possibly even more disruptive than social media. And so then it's like, yeah. do you give your kid like this headset and they're just like sitting there hanging out with their friends, like vegging out? I mean, like that seems like a nightmare to me. <laughs> I don't know. It's like it's like the movie Wall-E come to life, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I have to I don't know. I, I just was like had that inc- really lucky and incredible experience of spending like six weeks in the woods away from telephones and Internet at a colony. And, um, my, have you done that ever? Uh, you, well, I mean, I've spent, been like, I've spent a summer in the woods, but not at a colony. What kind of colony are we talking were about? Were you away from like internet and, and yeah, I, I, I hiked the Appalachian trail for a summer when oh, I was yes. young. Okay. Yeah. Oh, but was it when you were young, did you have a cell phone? No, this was, <laughs> I, what are you I trying to, you're like, are you, are you telling me that I'm really fucking old? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I suspect we're we're probably around the same age, but like I yeah. So to, this was I mean that was a, this was the longest I'd spent without you know I could walk sort of a half hour to get to cell service. So I did get you know like I was like texting with my partner at the end of the day and like answering emails, but um, especially in the like this moment like after the election i think like many people i know i was like compulsively um reading news every you know few minutes <laughs> right like yeah. to be and, and being out there i'm trying to come around to your question of like what's changing in the brain or in the self or whatever but like um and being out there and like being away from that just the the feeling of mm, in my head just changed in an incredible way, you know? And it really has scared me. Like I've been only going online for like probably an hour or less every day since then. I think there's, Uh, and being in nature, having access, you know, and, uh, like, I think the physical environment has maybe as as much of an impact on you as, um, what you're feeding your head. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Like to the point where like, it might be healthier to spend all day on your phone while sitting in the woods. <laughs> um, oh, interesting. Yeah. I would like to be a part of this experiment. Yeah. Be a subject. I'll sit in the woods with my phone. <laughs> but just, just that like, I mean, especially as city people, I mean, you're in New York, right? Yeah. And I'm in LA and it's like, you know, when you, I very rarely leave the city when I stop and think about it, I'm always in an urban environment and on the occasions where I'm able to get out of it, you notice it. It's very distinct, and there's a there's a real physical feeling to it that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder what it means for you know for writing as a practice to be uh, to be um, as distracted and, and overstimulated as we are. Well, and uh, what it will be like, you know, if we if. If as as virtual reality and on that stuff like starts to infiltrate our lives, like maybe I mean here's a like hopeful thought. Maybe it'll be even more interesting and kind of radical to just say like go sit in a cabin away from everything for a few weeks, you know, to write. That's what because I'm all it'll about. be almost yeah, it'll, it'll be almost like a <laughs> like 
Do you know what I mean? Like it'll be such a unreal and unusual experience that it will become suffused with incredible like pleasure and, and wisdom and um and then we'll all write great better books. Well, you know, I was reading uh there's a book that I read that that had a big influence on me, or at least like the I don't know. I don't want to overstate it because there are some. I have some issues with it. I think it's a little bit too zealous or intense at some points. But uh, there's a book I read a while back called uh, "Deep Work" by Cal Newport, and he's basically advocating that you should quit all social media. Uh, that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't add anything. Like I don't know. I'm, I'm going yeah. par- to paraphrase it horribly if I try. But basically, he's just advocating for living deeply and working deeply, yeah. and you know it's pretty persuasive to me, especially for people who do thought work, you know, people who are trying to write books, but who are spending, you know, hours and hours and hours online, like fractalizing their attention on the internet or getting wound up on social media and tweeting back and forth and checking their likes and their favorites and their friend count and all that kind of stuff. Like it, it seems like to be directly at odds with the kind of, um, the kind of mental state you need to be in to do your very best work. Now I say that, and then I can look at writers who are super active on social media, who are kicking my ass in terms of writing books. You know, like, Joyce uh, Carol says kicking your ass. Yeah. I mean, she's writing like, like three novels a year. They're all like, 800. and like, like a hundred tweet tweets a day. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to sound too full of uh, certainty on this, but I don't know. There, I think there's something to it, at least for me. And I think that maybe there's some kind of romantic idealism I have for a quieter life. Maybe that's just how I'm temperamentally suited. But uh, I feel like that's the direction I'm headed in. That's the place I would love to be if I could be there mm-hmm. um, and not feel like a, you know, a prospective publisher is going to look at me and be like, well, where's your platform? You know, how are you going to let people yeah. know? You know, like I feel sort of an obligation to keep it for those reasons. And then I, you know, I have this podcast and I want to make sure I can let people know about it. And I can sometimes be like, well, you know, do I really need to cancel out on social media? Can't I just use it for work? But then once it's there, you're checking it, you know, and it becomes this kind of addictive thing. Yeah, exactly. And then like, if you out of this sense of obligation to the platform that you have to have (laughs) to make a living, you know, you do things that then other people can look at you and say, like, oh, you're being so vain. And really, you're doing it out of duress. Right. You know? And I'm just... It's and now all it's, anxious about that vanity. It's now occurring to me, too, that I'm talking in this episode more than I normally talk. <laughs> even though you're the guest, which is making me feel self-conscious that I'm possibly being narcissistic and making this about me. <laughs> One of the reasons... You know, like, you asked, well, what got you into this topic? And I didn't even really tell you, honestly, what did. But, like, what it, the real question, isn't it, is about writing is what keeps you going? Like, what keeps you going deeper and keeps you committed and keeps you interested, you know? And wh- I think one of the those things for me was seeing how, like, when I would start telling people I was working on this topic, they would... I, they could, I could see that they got anxious and that they would start using the word narcissist like more frequently in conversations around me and stuff, I thought, <laughs> or maybe I was just like noticing it because of a narcissist, you know, because of the narcissism of one's topic of one's book and how everything seems to connect to it. But no, I really think that, you know, I would notice that people were like, um, would start to worry that I might know something and think that they were one, 
you know. And it was that that, like, I wanted to try and, in the original, original book, I just wanted to try and, like, uh, create an experience where by the end, you know, you would be free of that. Like, you'd be like, oh, wait, this is... This worry about narcissism, this more moral psychological stuff is actually, it's kind of a new religion that's trying to, it's not helping me figure out my life, actually. Do you know what I mean? Like this, this kind of like shame of like doing the things that you have, you sort of have to do. I don't know. I don't think I succeeded in that. But that's like what kept me going is this like anxiousness we have around it, which is really funny, actually. Well, but it also, I mean, like, the, like as you were working on the book and people would ask you about it and you would mention this and you would sense this anxiety in them. Did that give you a good feeling that you were onto a topic that really yeah. resonated? Yeah, absolutely. But then, and then also on the other hand, like the other thing that people would do is immediately start telling about pe- me about people they, they knew who were one, you know, or who they thought were one. Or they'd look at the book. When I started showing people the covers, they'd be like, is this book about my family? Is this book about my boyfriend? You know, is this Have you ever known or dated a narcissist? Me? Yeah. <laughs> have you? <laughs> I, I'm thinking about it, and I honestly don't think I have. I don't, yeah. I don't think I have. Not in the classic sense. I mean, I, I have, you know, I have dated people that I think, like, have issues and probably need to you know, at some point probably will have to, or have had, uh, to reconcile with those somehow. But I don't think narcissism was the thing. Yeah. And do you, I mean, what about you? Do you have somebody? Okay. Is that part of what made drove you to write the book? Like where you were like trying to dissect some past relationship or something? Um, actually no. Although there's like a, I did things in the book to, I think to make the reader wonder as if I was actually talking about a relationship, but I didn't use the word I ever. That was the whole joke of the book for me, except for the first and last few pages. <laughs> right. You so like you come out I, of the closet. What? You said you finally yeah. come out of the closet as the as first person. Self, as an author behind the, Yeah. <laughs> but like the, um, I mean, but I think I've had that, um, I've had that, uh, the fear that someone's love it was fake, right? Like when they went away, I've had that. That it must have been a fake because they must have been able to deceive me because then they were able to turn it towards someone else so easily. Right. I mean, right? You've had that, right? Like that's like the core impulse of the, of the uh, I think of the narcissism story, like, because they're not looking at me, they must be looking. They must be have been faking it. But like, what? I mean, actually, I was in I was in an open relationship at the time before I was writing that book, and I had like a girlfriend and a boyfriend, and I also it was all very honest and transparent. And so, there were all these moments where I would notice that one person, like, you know, I would be feeling like my boyfriend was being selfish or fake because he was like involved spending more time with someone else and then and then my girlfriend would be like I do you think she'd be like I I she she would think that I was being a narcissist when really it was just I had to work on this book all the time <laughs> <laughs> but I was functionally being a narcissist you know and like 
I was started noticing the relativity of that moment where you're like, you don't love me. <laughs> you know, you don't really love me. Um, and I think open relationships for me at least made me like, you think the problem is jealousy, but really it's so much about like time and space. And so I started to just get this view of like how our judgments of other people's like selfishness so much come from our own little position in their universe. And when you see that happening in multiple directions at the same time, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, or coming your way and also you're thinking about, about someone else, it kind of turns what is has been tragic in other relationships in my life into a kind of a comic a comedy. <laughs> you know, because you kind of see, oh, this is just like what we're like as humans. We get this fear, you know. Um, and we do this. We do it all the time. We're always turning away from someone to be with someone else. Well, and there's you know? so much, there's only so much energy. It's like, and, and I think about, uh, I mean, I guess this is the case in any profession, but writing in particular, because it's such a solitary thing and it's so inward and, yeah. you know, you have to have space and time to think and it feels yeah. very, and, and you probably aren't getting paid very much. So it's like, what, yeah. why are you doing this? Is, is this very, is this a selfish activity? Um, why am I so, you know what I'm saying? Like I can feel, oh, I can feel absolutely. guilty. I can feel guilty for wanting or needing to do it. Um, and then, you know, I, I'm not in an open relationship. I never have been, but I can't even imagine trying to juggle like multiple people. (laughs) Like, uh, how does that ever work? Like, do you think, can that really work? Open relationships, can they, they can be functional? I think so. I mean, can monogamy work? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I think so. <laughs> I sure hope so. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. I mean, I, I, uh, I think that it might be like, um, this might sound weird, but like, so you're able to have children. You have two children. Yeah. Or, yeah. So you have two children, and um, I don't know if you're with your partner, but like you have like, so you're your world is like decentered, right? Like you have, you're, you're like probably care about both of those little people as much as you do yourself. Right. And like, there are more probably. And like, so you're, you've expanded kind of your, so the circle of who you care about and live for to these, not just one, but two people. Now I don't mean that. No, obviously it's different than kind of, (laughs) you know, sexual love, but I mean, it's like, I, I imagine that, there's a there's something analogous analogous there, you know, like that you you just have to balance and nurture like your those relationships in multiple and you have to that portion of your time, you have to get kind of disciplined, yeah. right? I'm in, I'm in an open relationship yeah. with my kids. That's exactly. <laughs> this is my point. Because, and you can't, like, you can't pay more, too much more attention to one of them than the other. Yeah. <laughs> you have got to find ways to explain to them why you're, you know, <laughs> spending well, time with the there's other. So much, there's so much failure, I find, in marriage, in parenthood in human relationships broadly speaking there's so much failure like even with the best of intentions like i catch myself almost every day where i'm like i'll look at my wife and i'll just be like like i'm I'm screwing it up aren't i like i'm not doing this right i'm not being the right kind of dad and 
I, I can also be like, uh, you know, overtired. Um, like for example, like I have a dark sense of humor and I think it's good to share that with a child. Like, I think it's good to teach, <laughs> teach a child like, cause as, yeah. a, as a coping mechanism, you're like, you, you'll thank me later. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but like my daughter, uh, like I'll, I'll get like really dark, you know, in my humor with her, she's six years old and, uh, huh. I forget what we were even talking about. I could never even tell you where this originated, but like one day, I guess, I was like, uh, she's like, you know, I was telling her that if she doesn't listen to me or something along those lines, I was like, I'm going to cut off your, your pinky toe. I'm going to cut it off. <gasps> and like joking with her, like joking with her, you know, because uh, I don't know what it was. I might have had like the scissors in my hand, you know, and she's like, Daddy, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And then I make a joke like I'm going to I'm going to cut your pinky toe off her. She could say like, oh, you know, I have a, uh, a cut on my toe. And I'll be like, uh-oh, needs to come off, you know, like something like that. Yeah. And then she'll be like, daddy, no. And, you know, so that, that kind of joking I do. And then like, you know, weeks later, she'll be like, dad, I told my teacher that you were going to cut my toe off. And I'm, like, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit. You know, like, I can't be saying that to my child that I'm going to cut her toe off. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a monster is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> I am too. I am too. I mean, it's like. You know, it's like 80% failing yeah. most days, I think. Human relationships are hard. Yeah, they are. <laughs> and and you, you give advice, right? You're an advice columnist. Is that right? Oh, I mean, sort of, yeah. But like you, like you probably think more about this than most because people are probably coming to you with questions that are largely related to that one way or the other. I don't know if I think about it the most. I mean, those, like, it's called an advice column, but like... It takes like people. People send a question, and then I'll like research for like two or three months or like a year and write a big essay about it. So it's like not. It's, yeah. um, it's a traditional. It's um, slow. I think there maybe have been ten <laughs> over like three years. And this is for N plus one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess I'm 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 obsessed with how with understanding how human relations can relationships can um can be uh so like sources of real like m how we can make them <laughs> and make them work and i and i guess for me that's like since god is gone you know like what is the meaning of our lives it sort of has to be that Right, it has to be that, and it has to be for like making the world for those who come. You know, like I'm, I want to work on the world for your children, even if I never have children. You know, so like those things, I'm obsessed with figuring, not figuring them out, but just like trying to describe them. You know, just, yeah, coming to some understanding, and then, yeah. you know, in the absence of God, I would imagine you know you have to kind of make up or create uh, your own set of moral structures you know what i'm saying or like find it in reading elsewhere that's non-dogmatic or whatever the case may be but that's one yeah. of the things that religion provides it's all kind of ready-made it's like here we go you know <laughs> like in yeah when i think i'm kind of the same way when i talk about my obsession with finding the rules or the instructions it's like once you take away that framework it's like okay well now i've got to build this and you sort of have to like build right. your own, build your own house from scratch and um you yeah. know, like one of the things I was reading recently, like, I don't know if you've ever read this book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. It's, mm. it's kind of like yeah. a, a, sur oh 
classic of survivor literature but like i I read it a long time ago and then i reread it and there's a lot to like about it you know it's a little dated but i i feel like there's a lot of wisdom in it and one of the things he was saying in it is that when it comes to the meaning of life um it's not we who should think of it we shouldn't think of it as like we're asking like what is the meaning of life we should think of it as we are being asked, <laughs> uh, you know, and so we have to create the meanings. I mean, I guess that's his whole shtick, you know, or that not, not shtick, but that's his whole, um, like the, the core of, his, of all of his work in logotherapy, which is what he called mm-hmm. it or whatever, is that we have to make the meanings, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And why, like, why is that never as appealing as like just, trying you know getting some meanings from like on high or from somewhere else or from you know even from like some psychologist who is like oh this is what's wrong with your girlfriend well because you know (laughs) you know why and like this is why i like logotherapy is that he's uh i mean not that i've ever done it but like i just i i agree with what he's saying in that like the goal that he has with patients is to get them to take responsibility for their lives um and that's that's hard work you know what i'm saying like it has big rewards and it, I think it's probably a, a healthier way to go than to live passively or to hope someone's going to do it for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Um, yeah. But it's about personal responsibility, you know, and and under and also under and it's also hopefully empowering. Like you have, you know, th- this is up to you. Like what your life feels like is up to you, and how you conceive of it is up to you. And you know, most people, I think, um, I don't know that that can be a little bit destabilizing or that can feel onerous. Like, Oh shit. I mean, I can feel that like, Oh God, that's a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like hopeful and terrifying and, but I, you know, I, I feel pretty, pretty certain that on a individual level, on a personal level, and then also, you know, on the level of like, you know, my close friendships and my, like, romantic relationships, like, that it's just better. Like, it's just better and it works so that it means, means more, you know, to take this kind of radical responsibility for your own life. And I, but I don't know, like, can we do it, like, with the internet? Can we do it with fucking Trump administration, you know? Like, can we do it together? Can we take, like... That's what I feel hopeful, but more terrified about. <laughs> can we? Yeah. You know, can we like, can we, how do you take responsibility for history? You know? Well, I've been feeling like, I think this, I mean, I'm sort of like humble bragging about all these books that I've been reading and I don't mean I, to. No, it's, it's basically just like, I think this has been my reaction, you know, and yeah. I think it's kind of the way that I go generally, which is maybe not all that uncommon where like when the shit hits the fan or I feel really traumatized or uncertain, I'll just like dive into books. Like what, tell me, what do I do? You know? And, um, I don't know. It feels convincing to me right now anyway, that for me and for people of my tribe or whatever, like the writerly sort, like now's the time to go deep, you know, like in reaction. Um, Mm -hmm. when we have a person in the oval office who is, like the crown prince of like superficiality and um 
internet trolled them. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm going to run and I want to run in the opposite direction. Like I don't want to be any, I don't want to be anywhere near him. You know what I'm saying? Like get away from me and I'm going to go dive into, uh, the life of Albert Einstein and Viktor Frankl and like Mm -hmm. whoever else. And just like try to surround myself with those people because, um, I don't know what else to do. I mean, it's the best I can come up with for the moment. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad. I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to like, uh, I, I'm always, I don't want to sound too certain of my own thoughts. <laughs> um, I hope I didn't come off like sounding like I got it figured out. It's just, it's just the best I can do, you know, for the moment. No, no, not at all. Like, Uh, and I think like I don't know I haven't had much time to read lately but um, what sounds really nice to me in that like in what you're doing the kinds of books you're reading is that maybe the feeling that these even though this kind of even though even though there's something that's just very like surreal and that does feel new about this moment right yeah <laughs> um and and scary in sort of new ways and maybe it's um just the speed and vehemence of the verb i don't know like i mean it's so many things it's too i can't say it adequately but like to read these books that are like okay but these central ancient questions are still the questions you know like that sounds good to me yeah so, right it's just, um, yeah <laughs> it's uh i don't know it just feels healthier but you mentioned earlier uh, i mean you, you just said that you didn't you haven't had a lot of time to read but you also had six weeks in the woods i'm imagining you were out there um at like a writer's colony or something yeah i was at mcdowell oh. um actually and i did uh i did see some reading there what did you Um, what what are you working on what's your next book about i'm working on a book about um uh it's an expansion of an essay called how to quit that um was in n plus one a few years ago and it's about it's sort of a big i guess it'll probably be filed in a memoir um it's nonfiction and it's about Con- different kinds of conversions. So there's a story of a conversion of a condo of a factory where I used to live and where artists used to live into a condos. Um, there's I've been trying to figure out my father's story, like what radicalized him. I figured that that was a thing I could do right now. Is I mean I've been working on it for a while, but after the sort of Trump crisis of like why even write it all? What you know? Like I figured the thing I can do is think about how we change from one belief to another, how we become radicalized, how we understand people who believe, you know, radically differently than we do. I think that's always what I'm kind of writing about, but like that's, so I'm trying to tell my father's story and then my own story of coming out of faith and, um, in, and also there's a sort of love story. It's kind of like experimental literary memoir, I guess. Yeah, no, it sounds great. It sounds like right up my alley. Oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I'll do my best. All right. But now well, I'm, you know, doing some work, and then I'll hopefully come back to that. And I hope to be finishing it up by the end of the summer. 
Well, I uh, I wish you well on that. I really enjoyed uh, the selfishness of others, and and that's the title of her book for those of you listening. Just to make sure. <laughs> uh, I really selfishness. I do think that that's the strategy. You've got to enjoy the selfishness of others, except for assholes. Exactly. Exactly. So. Um, yeah, it was great to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time, and I, I wish you the very best on uh, on the new book. Yeah, you as well, and thank you for sharing like your thinking with me. I feel sort of, uh, I feel inspired. It's good to have a real conversation. So thank you. Okay, folks, there you go. That is Kristen Dombeck. Her book is called The Selfishness of Others, an essay on the fear of narcissism, available now from FSG Originals. You can read Kristen's advice columns over at nplusonemag.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at Kristen Dombeck. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. If you want to write to me, send me an email. The address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Tell me uh, what you think. Tell me a story. Tell me something. Maybe I'll respond to your letter on a future episode. The podcast is now entirely free. Tell your friends. I want the news to spread like a virus through the countryside. I feel good about the decision. I uh, I haven't had a single second guess or second thought about it feel like it's the right thing to do it's the right time gut feeling and moreover you know there's enough of an archive to make it worth it we have four almost 500 episodes at this point it's a significant amount of quality content waiting for you hundreds of hours you just gorge yourself on my content just gorging on content. What do we call, what do they call that with Netflix? Binge watching. That's right. All these food metaphors. You can binge listen. Binge listen to a podcast. Is that a thing? Is binge listening a thing? Or is it just binge watching? I gotta believe binge listening is a thing. I just had lunch with my friend Christian. I haven't seen him in a long time. He was my uh, next-door neighbor when I first moved to Los Angeles. We lived in a duplex. He and his uh, now ex-wife lived on one side. I lived on the other side with my roommate, and we became friends. He's the only person I've ever been neighbors with that I became buddies with <laughs> in Los Angeles. I think. Well, now there's been a couple of a couple of others, but not. He's the best friend I made as a neighbor. He's the first guy I ever lived next door to. We had a lot in common. It's a funny guy. And he's currently on a road trip. Like, he quit his job, and he's just taking a road trip all over the West. In a convertible Mercedes. That's how this guy rolls. He's got a sunburn. That's what I said to him. He drove me home after lunch, and I was like, does this car come with melanoma, or... That was my joke. You get it? So, road trip sounds good. I'll tell you what. If this podcast is able to generate enough organic support, 
grassroots support from listeners. I want to go, I was thinking about this the other day. I know I've talked about wanting to travel and do weird things with the podcast, but I have this vision of doing a road trip where I drive across the country, visiting authors in their own homes and interviewing them there. And then posting the podcasts as I go. Does that sound appealing? Like do it for like a week or two. I can't get away for longer than like a week or 10 days just because of like family obligations, being a dad. But I thought if I plotted it and I planned it and I picked some good authors and I drove like from coast to coast over the course of like, you know, seven to 10 days, that might be an interesting situation. What do you think? Am I crazy? Or do you, maybe you just want me in my garage. Maybe you're just like, you know what? We prefer you in your garage in Los Angeles, huddled next to a microphone. We don't want you getting any fresh air. We don't want you at large. Don't let them out of the house.